0: Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith, in the beautiful inland northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this.
1: Dr. Koontz, as this episode is going to come out a couple weeks from when we're recording it, this may not be the most timely thing. Then again, maybe maybe it will be, but as of this recording, uh, Dinesh D'Souza's 2,000 Mules has been out for about two days. This is a documentary, uh, whether or not I, – I have, I have views on media ecology that lead me to believe that documentaries are one of the best ways to lie and have people believe you. So just because there's a duck. Doc- <laughs> Right, right. Just because there's a documentary (laughs) doesn't mean mean much to me. Just because you have some stuff on camera doesn't mean much to me. But what this documentary does is it purports to trace the history of the night of the Joe Biden election win and show that it is a completely non-certifiable stolen election. And um, I'm curious as to your opinion on that. I, 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 my guess is that you're kind of with me on this. Like, yeah, probably was. Feel free to disagree. What I am most curious about, though. Is how, in your mind, a a illegitimate American presidential election interfaces with something we've talked about before, namely the LCMS mode, render under Caesar, obey your government, love, love, do it, don't ask questions. Um, How what is the proper Lutheran response to a, a coup? (laughs)
0: Okay. Um, The 2000 mules thing involves something that I hope most of our listeners are not still trapped in, but you never know which episode is somebody's first episode. And we do encourage people to pass the episodes on. So for the sake of the folks who haven't gone back and listened to you know, the, the episodes of which I'm a little ashamed now that we expended so much energy on things like the Electoral Count Act <laughs> from the 1880s, but I mean, it seemed like it was worth it at the time, um, is, you know, I, I wonder how much, how much of this, and I mentioned Edgar Allan Poe maybe last week, maybe a couple episodes back, dying on election day, partly because of the alcohol consumed and the physical abuse suffered, in the process of being dragooned into voting multiple times, electoral dysfunction and cheating is an element of evil within a system that relies to some degree on voting in the way that any system is going to have dysfunction, probably at its point of greatest importance, right? So this would be the application to political systems of something that has been observed about churches, that churches will Argue rather incessantly over the things that matter most to them. So the Lutherans will argue over how salvation occurs because justification is so important. The Catholics will argue over the politics of the Vatican. The Orthodox will argue over the nature of authority among the bishops, and so on and so on and so on. So it doesn't surprise me. It's not really new. And I think that all you're seeing is a difference between. The capacity to capture things on camera that we now have versus problems that I think were already there. So you will find a rather shocking number of places that were maybe fringe, we would now call them purple. Those colors weren't as blue, the red and blue thing was not as standard back in 1992 as it is now. But you will find a shocking number of states voted for the first time, or for the first time in a very long time, for a Democratic presidential candidate in the 92 election. I am, and I've talked about this with California before, but you could look at a place like Vermont, or many other such places, places that didn't even vote for FDR when everyone else did, and didn't vote for LBJ when almost everyone else did, voted for Bill Clinton, <laughs> of all people. I mean, is that is that actually true? It's I'm the economy not sure of-
1: about- yeah, it
0: is the economy. I mean, I, I, I am just not sure about any of that, yeah. right? So I, I, ca- I guess I can't say I'm surprised. So if you are surprised, welcome to the club. You're in a good club, but welcome to the club. And you don't need to be surprised anymore because this is just a form of dysfunction that is because of video recording becoming more, I think, obvious. But there are things that you can find people warning about a long time ago you know here's what's going to happen if we move away from paper ballots and so on and so on and so on and then the boxes were stuffed when we all used paper ballots so there are problems with all of this there are dysfunctions in all of this it's not new it doesn't surprise me i would say that the difference in the 2020 election is the blatancy, you know is the obviousness is the brazenness with which many of these things were carried out and then the imposition of a person who obviously, at least some of the time, is not really mentally fit for the tasks that he's being given to do, right? So I heard a news snippet the other day on the radio, one of these news updates, it was like ABC or something, and it said, President Biden spoke about whatever bill today, I think he was sending money and weapons to Ukraine or something, and the quote from President Biden was, uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that was the audio clip that they chose to use because he's not ready to go but we're supposed to believe he's the most popular vote getter practically ever. So, I mean, the absurdity was already there. The framing I think is all part of the difficulty in answer to the second part of your question. The framing is all part of the difficulty because even a certain amount of outrage about this is a little bit naive, at least that you're, su- you're surprised this is happening. You, you didn't think this kind of thing happened in America. I don't know what. But if that is the case, then you know, there are at least two things to say about this. One is the people were always the repository of the power. So the idea that we have to trust all of the people that run elections or oversee elections or want to win elections, that, that was never required of anyone morally. Like you, don't, you don't have to be in love with them. And, and you never did have to, or everything they say, or everything that they're telling you to do. That, that was always the case. It was, it was never the case that you simply had to follow their orders, okay? Part of the brazenness is that they are much more commanding in recent years. They are much more condescending. They are much more visibly irritated when faced with opposition, as well as terrified. You know, that's why the word insurrection continues to be used about January 6th, 2021. So all of that is to say that you always had both the right and the duty to hold people accountable. I think that the framing of this is a difficulty and the fact that it comes from Dinesh D'Souza should tell you quite a bit because he has always been given more leeway than white conservatives to say certain things. Because he's not, he can't be touched as racist or wicked or something like that, because he, he, he's not one of the ready-made demons. And his, his purpose then is basically to corral outrage into what, in this case, outrage about the election. Fine, but I'm not really sure anyone should be surprised by this who was following things like this before 2020, So we're outraged about the election. It's not going to be overturned. It doesn't matter, really. You're stirring up outrage when it doesn't matter (laughs) about something that's over. You know, I mean, uh, let's go be upset about the 1960 presidential election, because I'm not sure that the votes actually were what they were reported to be in Illinois. And that would have meant that Nixon was president. So, you know, it's like it's safe to be outraged about this. And it's safe because Dinesh D'Souza can't be accused of just like wanting to suppress black votes because that's it's gonna it's gonna be fra- it's gonna be responded to as voter suppression, right? That's how these things are responded to, and then we can use the Civil Rights Act to control a state like Georgia or Texas or part of the Voting Rights Act could actually involve redistricting. This is going on right now in New York because a judge threw out the map drawn, I mean, really just this sort of totally absurd map, you know, uniting parts of Staten Island with northern parts of Queens, with northern parts of Nassau County. I mean, it's just the only reason it makes sense is because it'll get a few more Democrats into the U.S. House. That was thrown out. Well, how can we respond to that? We can say, well, you're trying to suppress minority votes, right? So D'Souza is the front man for this because he can't be accused of trying to suppress minority votes, right? Right. So the framing all remains within the terms, within the safe terms of post nineteen sixties America, in which we have to feel bad about voter suppression, blah 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 blah. Meanwhile, we will go on doing what we want to do. We'll just do it under a different cover, right? So two thousand mules gets you upset about something that has been going on forever, and predates the voting rights act predates everything <laughs> okay it's a dysfunction of a system that requires voting on anything that's just the way these things go right there was i mean the roman senate had similar dysfunction <laughs> right not to speak of other assemblies that have voting in them you know the uh, the diet of the holy roman empire would have such dysfunction you know it's it's a problem with voting right and you're going to have problems i th- to me the greater concern is the brazenness and then what that reveals about the nature of those in power, those seeking power in the United States of America at this point, they're not even ashamed of themselves anymore. And the phrase safe, legal, and rare barely comes up in connection with abortion at this point. So it to me, it's it's the brazenness of what happened in 2020, the brazenness of a, you know, what's going on in Philadelphia, what's going on in you know, Wayne County, Michigan, these, these types of places. It's it's not that it's happening. And it's not that. I mean, to me, this is just a kosher version of Q, you know, let's, you know, if we just get enough patriots in control, if we just get Durham to investigate the right things about the Clinton Foundation, finally, it will all be put to rights. And that, I think, is an underestimation of of the difficulties we face or the, the problems that our nation has. So to say, well, you know, look at all these people doing this. They should be ashamed. Let's find them. Let's call them out. Go for it go for it i systemically it doesn't matter
1: it doesn't matter it implies that our problems are national and not global
0: that okay that's true too it it also it also doesn't pay attention to how the different local organizations interact with nationally or globally or or whatever i mean i don't actually i honestly don't know commands or command structures so it do, it doesn't show you why this Democratic, you know, party official in this county or these people in these precincts or whatever are doing what they're doing and who they got to do what and what is required for having further power. And people have noticed that, you know, like the guy, the, the black guy that attacked the, the Christmas parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin, one of the women that, tried, that got him out on bail was also involved in this. Sure, of course, I'm not surprised, right? what you have are national operatives that then interact with local machines or organizations in ways that are beneficial to perhaps, and and in many cases, very obviously, globally controlled narratives and initiatives. Okay. So she's going to be moved around, people are going to be moved around from Portland to Seattle. And places that have endured open socialism much longer than we have have words for things like this, like when you have a state created mob in Cuba, such as we have currently, as we record this outside the homes of assorted conservative Supreme Court justices, that's called a turba, right? Uh, Like a, you know, like the word turbulence in English, a turba, la turba, and you hire these people, and everyone knows that they were hired. And then they're brought there. When you're dealing with a situation like that, you're not dealing with a, you know, we're going to (laughs) bring, we're going to bring, you know, Miss Green and Mr. Smith to justice. And then everything is going to be fine. You know, Patriots in control. That's the, these are, these are symptoms, right? These are blisters on the skin. There's an infection underneath and that is not healed by simply saying, well, you know, let's bring, let's bring these names to justice.
1: Talk about the infection then.
0: The infection has to do with The the kinds of things that we discuss on here, which we have to take sequentially, both by topic, but also sequentially in time, because of its complexity, because it doesn't, this is not the kind of thing, and I know that people's people's experience is very different from from how things play out. So people's experience is an experience of their awareness of life, right? So this is similar to saying, one day you are shocked to have your wife put divorce papers on the kitchen table and say that you need to get out and you can never come back. You're shocked. That's fine. I do believe that you are shocked. I do believe that you wake up one day and you're like, I don't know what country I'm living in, or I don't recognize this country. I believe that your awareness is not the same thing as the events that led up to your awareness. And it's a distinction between one's own awareness and the events that led up to the point, the moment where you became aware, that's the distinction that we are pressing on this show and also that we are trying to explain because th- this kind of stuff didn't just happen overnight. It's not like all of a sudden everyone decided to go insane. They were like, yes, 10 years ago, we wouldn't have done this, but now we want to turn your little boy into a little girl. Many things led up to all of these things. And it's not that you know everything caused everything. But there are many, many, many things that cause the various conditions of life, whether in the family, whether in the state, whether in voting, you know, a broader or narrower realm, those all got us here. And so in the case of, you know, electoral fraud, you have a combination of American party structures and especially how those parties have become much more centralized over time, which we haven't really talked about because it's not terribly relevant most of the time. You have party centralization. You have changes in how campaign funding works. You have all kinds of factors leading up to the point where someone who otherwise maybe wouldn't do something like this is hired to do something like this or is willing to do something like this. And that didn't just happen overnight. And we really shouldn't be surprised by it.
1: Does the sacrosanct view of voting in the congregation have anything to do with our projection of trustworthiness in voting out into the political world?
0: That's possible. That's That's certainly possible, especially if you are in a situation where in some kind of local area, you do have either a, a certain pride in voting or, and or, you've actually seen it work competently. I mean, I've, I've been in congregations where it was functional. I mean, there's always wasted time in a, in a voters meeting, of course, because not everyone's going to speak to the point, but you know, I mean, sometimes it actually does work, right? Not, it's not always dysfunctional and horrible and terrible. And so if you experience that, then there is, as we've talked about before, there is a naivete about people where if their, if their awareness or their life experience is of functionality, people trying to be considerate, people trying to be kind, people trying to be helpful, then they begin to project that onto everybody. And it's just about the most unrealistic thing that you, you could possibly do for modern America. And, <laughs> and so, so you end up with a very very, warped view. I don't even want to say naive because that sounds sympathetic. It's actually warped because it destroys things, because you believe that people are better than they are, better intentioned than they are. It's, it's terribly unwise. And that understanding of, of, of people, especially at scale, even the scale of a city or a county, let alone a state or a country, uh, that unwise, very Pollyanna-ish view of humanity is something that makes that person who holds that view or that group that holds that view so much more vulnerable. That is, and that's a, the Latin root there means woundable. You can be wounded more easily, vulnerable than you would otherwise have to be. And you're certainly not morally required to be that vulnerable by having the mind of, as it were, a 10-year-old about the actions or the predilections of other people
1: yeah again that's that that's what I see though when I uh, I don't pay enough attention probably to our church bodies inner dialogue these days but uh, when I do what I continue to see is a, a body politic that believes we live in a very different country than we live in and it is a you know, Pollyanna ish is one way to look at it uh, there is an attribution of honor and morality to those powers that are outside of us, not in a way where it's like, oh, I'm going to turn the other cheek and they're going to strike me and I will die. Like, that's not actually what we, we don't think that. We don't think they're actually trying to hurt us. We just think that maybe something's going wrong somewhere. But if we just kind of toe the line and do the right thing, you know, we will come through this. And by toe the line and do the right thing, it isn't build an ark and, you know, pray for God to keep the door shut. Uh, It's more, Obey the priests of Baal when they tell you where to build your buildings, right? Uh, When they tell you uh, what you can or cannot say is is legal recourse. Um, And kind of a, a, I don't know if this is the same or not. um, We've we've talked about this a little bit uh, over the course of the show that the the way the rest of the country is going and not not to say there aren't others that have the same kind of naivety as as the average lcms congregation and or participant but the rest of the country is going into into lawlessness in the sense of the more the regime says you can you can't you can you can't you can you can't the more out in a corner someone's like well whatever you know i'm i'm just gonna yeah yeah and so last night i was able to attend a local republican shindig and Uh, one of the things they talked about was how Governor Pritzker in Illinois had made these orders about both school and business closures during the COVID pandemic. And that uh, there were well over a thousand uh, businesses that were part of a, a suit that eventually got the ruling overturned, but none of them ever did close down. And Pritzker and the state troopers and whatever powers they had, they never even tried. They just ignored them. And That's just it, too, though. They ignored the law that was a a lawless law. Uh, On another level, uh, I just last week hung out at Rudy's Cigars here in Rockford. It's the one cigar shop in Rockford. It's tough to open a cigar shop in Illinois since they've made it illegal to have a lounge anywhere that is connected to any other building. So you have to basically build your own building to open a cigar shop uh, Rudy's is grandfathered in. Uh, however, uh, the owner pointed out to me that somewhere Southeast of here, not in Rockford, it's another township. Uh, there is a new strip mall cigar shop with lounge where both apparently the city and the cigar shop owner are just ignoring the laws of the state. They've just decided, let's just invest all this money. It's good for our, our, our community, whatever. Meanwhile, Crazy thing about Rockford, you got to look both ways at green lights. Y- you actually do, because red lights they just yeah. they just don't matter the way they used yeah. to, right? Especially right. if it's just turning. Like you just you got an extra three seconds, right? So all of those to me are the same issue, which is that while Pollyanna continues to think we'll just keep being good people because that's what Jesus wants us to do, we're actually serving evil people, while the rest of the world is becoming. More like them, and somewhere in there, again, there has to be a an aha moment, which at least shifts our internal grit, if nothing else. Thoughts?
0: I I I think that people do not recognize a distinction between their interests and anyone else's. They perhaps presume that everyone else is just like they are, or if they had enough income, or if they weren't homeless or if they were the same race or if they were whatever your differences between you and that person they would be just like you. And there is an extreme narcissism involved in thinking that way. Hmm. Even if you are really nice and really helpful and really productive and you're really great at work and you're a really great church member, there is an extreme narcissism that many such people have about other human beings that everyone wants to or is asked at least aspirationally just like them that creates a complete inability to understand other human beings because you're not even trying. That's why you're outraged because you would never run that red light. So you can't really imagine why someone else would. Therefore, not even keeping that in mind as just a naturally occurring disastrous phenomenon, you begin to go as soon as it's green because you could not imagine if you were in the opposite direction that you would go through a red. Why would anyone do that? It's red. That's my kids know it's red and you stop. They don't know how to drive. Now you get T-boned. Now, whoever was riding with you is in you know critical care. All of this because you just don't have enough imagination to care more about what is going on around you and the people around you, however different they are from you. They're doing things differently you don't have enough imagination, you're kind of living in this bubble, this narcissistic bubble in which everyone else is just like you. And that's actually, in this case of the guy running the red light and slamming it outside the side of your car, that's actually dangerous. If entire groups don't recognize that they have interests distinct from other people, then how much more dangerous is it? So when you're thinking about the future, no one is asking you to repair everything or care intensely about, you know, American constitutional history or whatever else that may be pretty abstract and pretty irrelevant to your life, but you do have to understand that you have interests distinct from in many cases our regime, in almost every case our media and so on and so forth, and you can actually be a lot less angry in life if you just accept other people's limitations and your own. that You're not going to, you know, this streaming service is never going to reflect your values. So cancel it. Who cares? You don't have to make a big moral performance out of it. Just get rid of it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that much. They really don't care that you're canceling because they have plenty of other people to subscribe. Just cancel it. The reason you're making a moral performance is because you think there's an audience there and you think the audience is there because you're projecting yourself onto everyone else. Just accept (laughs) that you're different from lots of other people, especially if you're a Christian and move on with your life. You don't have to be consumed by rage or confusion constantly that other people are different from you, that they're not doing what you're doing, that they are evilly motivated in much of what they do, also in ways that you yourself don't do. You know, you don't have to say that you're morally equivalent to the woman who is shouting her abortion. You just have to recognize that she has her own spiritual problems, she has her own struggles. This group is evil in its own particular ways that you don't agree with. Okay. You don't you don't have to be angry about all of that, but you need to take action on the basis of those realities rather than on the basis of the anger or confusion that you feel when you see them.
1: Yeah, yeah. You got to defend your spiritual border, and to do that, you got to acknowledge that it's there. And I think you're, you're quite right. There is there is a level of cultural systematic narcissism that the uh, the Lutheran zeitgeist within the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod has clung to and uh we think the world needs us. We think the world would want us if only they understood. And maybe if we just tried harder then then it would all work out. Um which is just, just not the biblical model for the remnant at all if we are the remnant. Like see what we like to think we are, right? Um so okay, if we are, but th- that doesn't mean everyone's going to finally come around once we get the right music or something. Uh it, it's uh, there is a a self-importance that until we jettison that, we're not going to be able to defend the things that we have, which are important.
0: Yeah. I, I think the self-importance is, is, is common to people in modern America. It is a For self-involvement. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the way that I can tell this is that people sincerely don't care how they look when they go out in public. And that, that tells you that really all that matters is how they feel about themselves. Now that may be <laughs> mixed with, insecurity about their weight or the fact that they are wearing pajama pants to a public function
1: those pajama pants man it's just the weirdest thing to me i can't get it but
0: but it is a certain indifference to others that 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 really exemplifies our spiritual sickness is is the obsession with oneself and and one's own comfort and one's own sense of is this what i want to do do i do i care um it's why judge not or colloquially don't judge is the Bible verse that's left over in the popular imagination because that, that narcissism is so deeply rooted in people's experiences of life that it seems comprehensible and obvious and natural. I mean, we don't even talk about it really because it just seems so obvious.
1: I think obsession with comfort's pretty key there. Yeah. So um, we, we talked about voting and LCMS voting and things like mm-hmm. that a little bit ago. We do have a question from a viewer that that gets in this direction a little bit. So We'll take this one from John here. He says, uh, our 120-year-old LCMS congregation of 350 members is going to restructure our model of governance. The represent- representational board-led structure has not been fully functioning for a few decades at least. Can you please discuss the history of Lutheran church structure pre and post Walther as well? Any wisdom and advice regarding policy-based and hybrid models would be of great benefit. Do we have to just accept that it is impossible to fill boards and will never change back? How can a church be structured in such a way that it is prepared for and fortified against shutdown orders? Can this be an opportunity for the building up of a stronger community of believers? I think the answer to the the end there is, is yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, And uh, you'll be better at this than I am, but historically the, the, massive extensive board- based organization is really a 80s 90s develop it's not even a thing for us before that there were you had you had the voters you had the council you had the elders and maybe you had something dealing with school. Um, and after that you you just didn't have this this panoply of uh, seats to fill so that you'll get together and have meetings about how to have potlucks. I, and, and that you have to vote these people in and they can only do it for two years. Otherwise, you know, the, the powers will, will all be thrown off. That That is a uh, a late development, especially if we're going to go back pre-Walther. Um, and I got more to say on this, but yeah. I want to hear your thoughts.
0: Yeah. And the the reason that this matters, if you're listening and, and you're not a Lutheran, is that whatever ch- you know church you are in, or however your local government is structured, or however your state government or whatever is structured. Uh, structure is one of these things that, that really matters when it does. <laughs> and it's boring to people the rest of the time. You know, the, the precise relationship between, say, the, the Ways and Means Committee and the general US House of Representatives is, is only interesting to a certain subset of you know, politico.com junkies until it matters for some major decision about our nation's life. So that's why things like this matter in any, any human group. And you're right, the, the, board, the board structure, I, I would place it after the Second World War, just because I have, I've read enough from the 50s and 60s that presumes that it's there when you are doing something in a Lutheran church. It certainly doesn't predate the 1950s. And that's a function of an investment in, I don't know, corporate decision-making structures that gets reflected in the local church. It gets reflected in the level between the local church and the national church and the Missouri Synod, which is the district. And it gets reflected in the national church, where after the Second World War, we get a church headquarters. We have a different one now, but we had one on Broadway in St. Louis originally, the Lutheran building, and similarly, districts had much larger staffs back then. Maybe up through the 1990s, and then many, many, many of those things get cut back. Which is also, you know, kind of a in, in somewhat similar way that you know medieval Italian city government lives on in Vatican City. Methods of corporate organization from 1990s corporate America live on. In denominations like the Missouri Senate and others. So these things are always on a little bit of a time delay in churches. Therefore, the history is in some ways useful. I suppose it's useful in the perspective it gives you. I don't think it's terribly useful for current organization, because although the Bible provides principles such as male headship, it does not provide specific structures, which is wise. Because what then happens is that you have a certain freedom to organize things wisely without being bound to have a specific structure. Human beings always end up sanctifying the structure rather than the principles of wisdom. And it leads to much distress and sometimes (laughs) weeping and gnashing of teeth. So pre, let's say, the organization of the Missouri Synod, Lutheran churches are going to be organized in two different ways. One is in state church situations, they will be organized such that ultimately the head of state functions a little bit like the Pope within his own little area or country, or in the case of the Prussians, rising empire. And then in Lutheran churches specifically, theological faculties have always been very, very important in governance because they control the supply of pastors who may become a pastor. That theological faculty, or however many there are in a given church, is going to work with nobility, lawyers, especially people of what we would now call professional classes within a consistory system that would be something like the composition of, say, a church council in an American congregation. The other model that gets used before Walther, especially among the Tennessee Synod, but also Lutherans in the Northeast, which is, you know, mostly Pennsylvanians, but they're New York, New Jersey as well, Virginia, is sort of what's called a vestry model, which we take over from the Episcopalians, where prominent members serve as a combination church council and elders in modern terms, and work with the pastor who is the head of the vestry. In order to govern the congregation. And the thing that I like about that vestry model is that it's nimble and it only requires engagement from motivated men rather than an entire structure of this committee and that committee, and which, which is always very poorly done because meeting minutes are not taken generally. And when they are taken, they're, they're almost never centrally organized or collected into a kind of journal of the congregation's transactions. So it's all sort of a mess. I mean, we're not very good at doing the large board and committee structure. That's going to come about after the Second World War, largely as a reflection of corporate America's ways of, of managing groups of people. But
1: yeah, go ahead. Well, the advantage corporate America has is they pay the people who do the work and we're trying to <laughs> run it. We're yeah. trying to run it through right. you know, people on their on their spare time in an age where time is the one thing no one's got any of because of, yeah. all of the time-saving devices that have allowed them to extend themselves so far. Yeah. Right. I think one of the big biggest shibboleths that I have noticed is the assumption of the distinction between the council and the elders as like a Lutheran thing. Like yeah. a, you can't be Lutheran and not have a board of elders. That's something that is different than the parish council. That's something that is different than uh, the voters assembly, that these are these kind of uh, holy three. And he, anytime I've even tried to broach the conversation, it's mm-hmm. almost like it, it like short circuits the thinking, like they just didn't even hear me. They can't <laughs> even engage back.
0: Sure. It's yeah, weird. Sure. It's
1: really weird.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, The distinction is one that, you know, of course I was familiar with. And then when I started the congregation that I, that I planted in Pennsylvania, not the established one, which already had a somewhat modified structure, which was, which was pretty nimble. But when I started it, the thing that you realize when you're starting a church is, boy, a lot of the things that I thought mattered or were necessary or obvious just aren't. (laughs) <laughs> so I've never thought about who exactly is going to turn on the lights at church. Cause I don't arrive first on Sunday morning. Now I'm thinking about things like that. And it's a similar thing with structure is that you realize that certain things would be helpful. So a combination in the church plant, when it's getting going of the president is a man who is both president and also essentially the elder with me, you know, I, these decisions about these decisions that in an established congregation get put into neat boxes of, well, this is a secular question. So that's for the church council about, you know, whatever the parking lot or the the landscaping. And then this is a spiritual question. So pastor has to talk about that with the elders. They're all effectively spiritual questions. Life is a spiritual question. So, you know, segregating these things strictly is ultimately, I think not really good for the congregation or the pastor to think of the life of the congregation as this utterly separated, who knows, let's do this over here. That's different from people's skills. Yeah. The guy that runs a business knows more about accounting than I do. Or the guy that is a landscaper knows more about landscaping than I do. That doesn't mean that they have to be elders. It doesn't mean they can't be elders. It just means we need to distinguish between expertise that's useful for certain things. And then the overall purpose of the congregation, which is led by the pastor with the goal of obtaining heaven through faith in jesus christ right an extension of that gospel so ultimately for the congregation thing everything if it is big enough if it isn't like you know we need to restock the paper towels in the bathroom all the bigger things are ultimately going to be spiritual questions
1: yeah and and one of the other i got i got a bunch i still want to say but yeah. the, one of the things that has fascinated me as i've watched the the council elders model board model. So you, you want a group to do, um, I don't know, you, 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 (laughs) since they're all bad ideas, I think you want a group to do Sunday school. And so you have, you know, these people you elect to oversee the Sunday school teachers. They're not necessarily the teachers themselves, but they're going to be say your, your board of education. And then they are going to choose someone who will represent them to this other meeting. That's called the council, which maybe, or maybe is not about preparing for the voters assembly. It may be about making its own decisions. So you have that person shows up there because they've been, you know, kind of chosen through this process to do this one task. And then they get to be one of seven people that make all the decisions. And, why are are, are they equipped for that is really the question or or let's just put it another way Um, you have someone who's really good at accounting they they can do all the numbers and so we just ignore the fact that there's term limits on the treasurer and that person's just going to do the accounting forever which is how it usually works out and then that person now gets to be one of five people that makes all the major decisions why what about this person does accounting means that they're really good at policy which gets us a little bit to the policy-based governance thing. Um, there's there, there's a big bugaboo about that many years ago because it was used to scuttle contemporary worship and do a lot of LCMs congregations through transforming churches network and other things like that, as the ablaze campaign, yada yada yada. So so because of the use of policy-based governance coming out of evangelical congregations as a way of trying to de-Lutheranize Lutheran congregations, a lot of people didn't like the term. I always thought, however, that the the term is not the problem. The question is, what are your policies? Uh, The idea behind policy-based governance is that you have a a group who are vested with the interest of preserving something that's important about the congregation, whatever it is that's important, what makes you a congregation. This group is vested to protect that. And then their job is to make sure there's a box around the pastor so that the pastor doesn't break that. And then the pastor is sort of free from there to go out and try to be the what the the chief executive officer. We hate that term, although the um, the execution of Word and Sacrament ministry through the office of the ministry do- doesn't seem like it's so um, contrary to a CEO ultimately in concept. Um, but that the idea is that you have this check on the pastor via the policy that's based upon an agreed. Substance that cannot change, and I never understood why. Okay, so you got the Book of Concord. That sounds like the policy to me. You know, everything else should reflect and go back to that. And hey, Pastor, go teach the Bible and and make sure we're in line with the Book of Concord. The question is you know, ultimately, though, does that structure have any more value than any other structure? And as you've already said, no, no. The answer is no. Uh, the more that you build onto the structure, the more the structure can be worshipped. Uh, the the more open or, or in impermanent the structure is the more you really are just a people with your Bibles and a pastor who teaches it and the supper every Sunday um, the, the more you're probably going to be able to handle whatever comes your way so I, I'm, I'm waxing long here but I I'll try to yeah. bring it bring it together um, we began a discussion about the Constitution here in Rockford, before 2020, and it you know it got put on pause during 2020. The reason for that is because we had a 57, 68 page document with you know eight boards, ten boards. I mean this this was a beast of a thing, and we just can't possibly fill those 45 positions. And we, we even though we're doing we're doing fine, but but not that fine. Um, And so we started that conversation. And then what 2020 showed, something that you you kind of alluded to a moment ago, was like, you know, a lot of the stuff we say we got to do, otherwise it's all going to fall apart. Guess what? You don't have to do any of it. And everything's fine. The only thing you got to do is make sure the pennies are adding up. And well, that's mostly it. Every month or so, someone should make sure that what comes in is more than what goes out. And after that, you need, you need the pastor to be able to be supported in dealing with any crises that come up. So it's good to have good counsel around that man. And most of the things that come up have to do with worship. Even the parking lot is about like, do we have enough space for all the people are going to come to worship? Like everything kind of comes back to that. And so through, through that learning experience, uh, what I am endeavoring to do here, I cannot claim to have successfully done this. I have some people on board. I have some people don't even know yet. Uh, But what we are endeavoring to do is to scale our constitution uh, way, way, way back. And what it will ultimately look like is the election of a couple of officers. So a president, a secretary, recording secretary, a treasurer, a financial secretary, and, uh, monthly or every other month or eight months a year, voters meetings with with no other meetings aside from a board of elders that's uh, basically going to handle again, kind of the worship pastor support. The idea behind this, is not that I think voters are great. I actually, I've always hated voters meetings, but what I've experienced again is that we have, it's like we have three voters meetings. We have the council voters meeting, we have the elders voters meeting, and then we have the voters voters meeting. And all we do is just spin our wheels and what we're really achieving is we're making sure the budget's doing okay. And so why not just do that? Like, like the things you actually have to do, just do that. And then let the word of God follow where it may. Or another way to say this for if any of my, I, most of my members don't listen to the show, but if, if any do, is like what we're trying to do is take what we're already doing and just open up the transparency of it. Like we're already operating this way. They were operating this way before I got here. Kind of, I mean, they had like two other boards that had to do with the school that closed down. So like, um, what we're trying to do is then take what we're doing that has to be done and just do it in full view and bring everyone into the conversation as much as possible. Now, the one threat to that is, okay, so what if you get a malicious person who wants to upset things? Yeah, well then then you got to deal with reconciliation in the congregation, don't you? And you can't, you can't hide from it. It's all, it's all right there. Now, I'm not saying that this is the wisest answer. I'm not saying I, I'm, I'm actually, or we're actually going to succeed in this here, um, but it is us wrestling with the same question that that John is asking: Is this an opportunity to build a stronger community of believers? And and I can't see how having everybody who actually cares. I mean, if, unless you're like a five thousand member congregation, right? If you're under three hundred members, everyone who actually cares, get them together once once a month and just talk about what's going on, and check the numbers and move on, because there's there's not that much you got to do. There really isn't. It's like go to church, read your Bibles at home like raise your kids. What's with this? Let's look at a nominations committee and try to strong everyone strong arm everyone into changing their chairs this year again, right? That, it's just spinning your wheels and ignoring the stuff that really ought to be being done. So I, I went on quite a way that while there. I'm sure you got thoughts.
0: I think that whatever denomination you're in, you have an opportunity at this time to effect change that is really helpful because so many things are up in the air. And that's going to be limited by whatever structure you have inherited. I don't know exactly how, you know, specifically a Roman Catholic parish is able to really govern itself, what you do precisely when you have, let's say, a hostile diocesan bishop. I don't entirely understand how those things work, but I'm sure the listeners that are in those situations do understand whatever you're doing, you want to prioritize what what magnifies and what promotes Christ and in different times and different places the reason that structures change either obviously change in the case of you know churches coming from state church situations in Europe to free churches in America or when the structures informally change so you know how is this catholic diocese actually being administered is it is it really being administered by the lawyer and not by the bishop these are questions to ask yourself and then under, to understand that now is a time when things are up for grabs in an enormous way. And that is an enormous opportunity, not just a challenge, but also positively speaking, an opportunity. So in, in answer to the listener's question, I would say policy-based governance can be very helpful and very efficient. You need to make sure that the pastor or pastors, I don't know, I don't know where you're at on that or where you are, is ready to take on that role. Most pastors would have a great deal of difficulty and i and i certainly saw this with policy based governance implemented in certain places uh, with which i'm intimately familiar what happened how it went is that it went very poorly because the pastor was prepared to study he was prepared to write sermons he was prepared to do visits he wasn't terribly prepared to make efficient or clear or wise decisions about other matters so however you structure it make sure that you have the people because the question here is always what kind of people are we working with and what are they capable of not so much what do you know i want to do or what have we always done
1: so another Email this one comes in from Cold War Paratrooper. Uh, he says he's been a longtime listener, benefit greatly from your insights. It's a plural year. I'll have to insist it's plural there. Um, for the past <laughs> for the past year, he says I've been part of a civic community of Christian men, all non-denom participants, discussing how we can assist each other to build community as our regime collapses. It's, it's kind of my thinking too. Uh, in that that thing I mentioned, I went to last night. It's called Elevate and Inspire. It is an Mm Illinois-focused, Rockford area-focused civic group that is purely run by a Christian church, and they are they are openly Christian about their republican politics um and they are all i mean uh, the the opening prayer and the closing prayer were both altar calls i mean we had two alt- altar calls at the start and the close of this, this event last night so so yes these things are out there and i don't know that going to them is necessarily wrong um but you will find some interesting challenges as, as a lutheran and so he says there was a suggestion to begin deepening the group by teaching christian doctrine which will rotate between all of the members. As a convert to the Confessional Lutheran Church in the LCMS, from the wasteland of American evangelicalism—hat-tipped issues, etc., I suppose—I initially recoiled at this idea. Later, after I had settled down and realized that this could be an opportunity to evangelize my evangelical friends, uh, my question is, uh, when my turn comes to lead the group, should I teach prayer or baptism from our small catechism? My initial thought is to teach the Our Father. Uh, Your thoughts would be greatly appreciated. So it really are two things there, though. So you're part of this civic-minded group that now suddenly wants to be spiritually minded and turn it into a a church teaching session. And then secondly, if you got that opportunity and they're going to give you the bully pulpit, uh, what should you teach?
0: You have an enormous chance to do wonderful things for people. So I would go for it the order in which you teach things is always going to be pretty important. So I try to start with anybody from some kind of common ground. That does not mean that whatever I say is simply recovering common ground over and over and over again. So again and again, you say, yeah, we believe that the family is really important. And then they all mumble and say, oh, that's good. That's good. What I mean is that you begin to express, perhaps, let's say you teach on the fourth commandment and you begin to say something like, I believe that life is entirely the gift of God, including the family. You're now beginning to restructure their thinking about life, not only in terms of effort, which is very familiar to them and probably should be more familiar to Lutherans, not only in terms of effort, but also in terms of gift. So eventually you can say and introduce the words if you want to, right? We have this affirmation in Luther's Christology that Christ is both donum, gift, and exemplum, example, gift, and example. And if you begin to structure your teaching on, say, the fourth commandment in that way, by the time that you are talking about the creed, you say, this is both, this is both gift and example, the life of Jesus that we learn in the creed or however you want to do this. But Lutheranism is not merely a set of affirmations about the nature of salvation or something, or the nature of the sacraments or the nature of church structure. It is a Christian theology, therefore it is holistic. So whatever you teach on, and let's say you're in a series of guys and one guy has this and the other guy has that, and you have something in between in some series that you've all determined you're going to talk about, you should sound a little different. And I don't, That doesn't have to be on the level of vocabulary. You don't have to use words that are like weird or hard to understand or unique to you. And then you just are off-putting. What you want to do is you want to take central insights that are unfortunately particular to us because they should be for everybody. We, We have a Catholic, we have an ecumenical Christianity. You want to take those things, that understanding that what do you have that you have not received which we can say concerning you know, our children. We can also say concerning how we understand baptism, how we understand the Lord's Supper, how we understand all of life. And you can sprinkle that into everything. So I would, I would use whatever words are common, whatever words are clear, and I would use whatever structure is most amenable to the group and most helpful to the group. And then I would teach on prayer or the fourth commandment or whatever in a way that is, Infused with the utterly gracious nature of the life we have in Christ, which they will be somewhat familiar with because they're Christians too, but they may not have heard in quite the the I think what should always be a ravishing, delightful way that Lutherans should proclaim Christ.
1: Yeah, I mentioned the the altar call last night, and the the second one, the end of the night, he basically shamed anybody who didn't recommit their lives to Jesus that moment, uh, and. The, the feeling of unworthiness that his quote-unquote preaching of the gospel brought to me, and I'm one, you know, well-vested well in knowing exactly what he's going to do before he does it, and yet the level of, un- of unworthiness he brought to me um, was disturbing. It's like, wait, wait, like there's some good news here, right? Yeah, uh, and so to have the good news be something that permeates who you are and how you speak I, I think is essential. I also would encourage you now well, you know I know there'll be those who disagree with me since since I don't believe the catechism of Doctor Martin Luther, namely, his explanations are the authentic, inspired Word of God, but are rather a good confession of it. I, I highly recommend if you're in a group of Christians that are are just Christians. That is, they really have no concept of the history of the Reformation, the fight that went on, the struggle that Luther himself endured, his wisdom, generally speaking, his power with exegesis. Like, don't go straight to Luther. Like that, that, that doesn't mean anything to them. And if anything, it turns them off. They're not going to be able to listen. Go straight to the Bible that Luther pointed you to. So when you go to the small catechism on baptism, you're going to find Romans 6 quoted and pointed to. Well, hey, why don't you just teach Romans 6, 3 through 11? Like, it's been a long time since they've probably looked at those texts because their pastors don't talk about that text. That text is very difficult to deal with because it teaches that baptism does stuff. So do that. Use their use their weapon against them, and it's not their weapon; it's our weapon. We have it. Now, the Lord's Prayer. I can see the same idea uh, where, or you mentioned Fourth Commandment. That's the one I was thinking of. Is so. So I've got the Fourth Commandment, and let's look at the Fourth Commandment. Let's look at where Paul talks about the Fourth Commandment, and then maybe I close with, "Hey, I got this thing called the Catechism. Here's what Luther says. It's kind of valuable." But if you're if you're gonna try to convert people to Lutheranism, you got to use the stuff that converted Luther, right? Which was the Scriptures. It wasn't, it wasn't Luther and it wasn't the commentaries. The commentaries are great, but they are not the foundation. And so, especially you want to, you want to reinvigorate these guys. You want to show them what we've got that they don't have. What we have is an understanding of the scriptures. And so, so do that, do that in front of them. Uh, Shifting for one more question before we end this uh, potpourri show. um, James says this, uh, the Spanish flu was the product of, uh, well, so as we, asserted recently the, the spanish flu was the product of military industrial complex what about kennedy nine eleven, covid the shot uh, pending food shortages ukraine 5g chemtrails in the sky global warming take a look at the fruits of graft if you have any doubt so you know his his punch there by the way the military industrial complex is the fall guy uh satin that probably means Satan. Satan has been busy while we relax in front of the TV. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with that last statement, but um, you know, we've, we've hinted at talking about Kennedy before. maybe a few moments on 9 11 wouldn't be uh, no one will be bored for these last few minutes.:
0: <laughs> So Kennedy, Kennedy's assassination is like 9/ 11 in its complex cast, strange people who were in Dallas in November of 1963 as well as strange people and, and very strange events involved in how, you know, the 9-11 hijackers obtained training, the relationship of Israeli intelligence in the case of the Mossad to both events, and also the the number of warnings received concerning both events beforehand, a little bit like Pearl Harbor. Here's what I don't believe about Pearl Harbor or the Kennedy assassination or 9-11 is that specific blanket orchestration is necessary for major events to happen. And what I mean by that is when people are talking about who carried out various wicked acts where the agency is unclear, they want to find specific responsible human actors that would eliminate the possibility of any other agency or the necessity for someone in charge of something to react to something else. And so they they think of history, especially of tragic histories as essentially giant stage plays. And I do not believe that. I believe that whether there is an assassination going on such as the access that people had to President Garfield as well as President McKinley as well as then President Kennedy, you see also the amnesia induced in Americans by television. They, they don't remember there were assassinations before that. Whether access to a president, former President Roosevelt was shot in the run up to World War I. So there's that. He did not die. So there's a question of, okay, well, what kind of access do we have? Well, we have this kind of access. And then there's a question of, okay, well, who is motivated to kill this man? In the case of an American president, lots of people, <laughs> lots of people. Which is why it is very hard for me to pin down in the case of Kennedy, any one specific agency, whether disgruntled Cubans or the Central Intelligence Agency, or Israeli intelligence, um, or anything else, or in the case of President Kennedy's brother, who was behind Sirhan Sirhan, who demonstrated, I mean, all the marks of being someone who was under some kind of mind control, right? When he shot Bobby Kennedy. And with Bobby Kennedy and Jack Kennedy, there are bullets that are going in the wrong direction, according to the official report. In the case of Jack Kennedy, we're supposed to believe that a bullet essentially turned around in the air and then went back and killed the president, based on a combination of exit wounds and where the Texas Book Depository is. And in the case of Bobby Kennedy, we're expected to believe that there are marks in that hotel in Los Angeles that and things like door frames that can be made from the wrong direction. So you have improbabilities. Those improbabilities have potential agents behind them. Okay. Why did building seven fall down on 9-11? Why did it fall down the way it did? You can theorize about all those things. You can say these people did it. These people planted it. It was the Israeli art students. It was... George H.W. Bush, who was in Dallas in 1963, you see that I'm kind of mashing these things up because I'm extremely skeptical about the necessity to figure out exactly who did what when. It's sort of like saying, well, how did we get these videos of people collapsing in China that eventually scared us enough that then we got these measures taken? It I mean, it's it's sort of like asking, like, why did this man rape these women? Like, kind of doesn't matter. What matters is that it happened. What matters is that it was evil. What matters is the evil that it it produced then and produces now. It doesn't matter if I pin down precisely what happened in the case of a single criminal, a rapist, a murderer. I can pin that down. In the case of events that are crimes committed upon heads of state, very hard to pin down. So many people would be interested in such a crime. So many people would benefit from such a crime. So to pin it down, to say anything less vague than military, industrial, congressional complex, as we said, Eisenhower originally wrote in his first draft of that speech, is sort of pointless Because again, I would go back to the the founder's critique of power. It doesn't have to do with obsessive detail about specific people. This goes all, I mean, this ties in with 2000 mules. You can prosecute all 2000 mules, you can find everybody who enabled 9 11, you can find everyone who made sure that Jack Kennedy, you know, bled out in that limousine with his wife next to him you can do it. And that would be satisfying. It would not destroy the powers and principalities that bring such things to pass. And I'm much more interested in the destruction of powers and principalities through the gospel, but also in this life only through organization and reorganization of states and groups and nations that are actually more just than what we currently have. I'm not interested in finding everyone who ever did anything wrong. There is, again, I think like the 2000 mules and electoral fraud, a certain naivete that if you just do this one thing or bring these people to justice, you will have fixed the problem. And in the case of the existence of the Central Intelligence Agency or the nature of Mossad's activity in the United States or their intertwinement with you know, Cuban exiles or the mafia, those structures are vastly more important. The existence of those organizations is vastly more important than saying, well, if you just admit that you killed Jack Kennedy, then we'll be happy and life can go on as it was before.
1: Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of human rights, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But, When a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. The Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776. You're listening to a Brief History of Power. You know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here.